Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Jesus the Christ has a goal, to serve God. On that goal, he remained focused. He had a purpose, to teach love. On that purpose, he remained focused. He had a mission, to demonstrate to people how to lovingly serve each other while serving God. To that mission alone, he gave all of his energy. In his own words, he revealed the power of having a purpose when he said, But for this purpose was I born. In essence, Jesus was saying to us, When your life is for a purpose, you will rise above all difficulties. Focus on the goal. Focus on the purpose. Focus on accomplishing the goal. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people get out of bed with no goal. Going to work is not a goal. It is an activity. Paying bills is not a purpose. It is an activity. Providing for a family is not a mission. It is an activity. Your goal is the what of your life. The goal is not the place you begin. It is the place you end up. Your purpose is the why of your life. Why you as an individual are moving toward the goal, the end. Your mission is the how of your life. Once you are clear about the what, the why, and the how, you have a focus. You have something to live for that moves you into, through, and out of the activities of your life. We were each born for some purpose. Jesus was clear. He was focused. He mastered his mind and his life with focus. He was kind enough to leave us instructions on how to do what he did. He said, follow me. For the things I have done, greater things than this shall you do. Well, it's here in the Archbishop's Corner that Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair makes us aware that the Master Teacher left us instructions. He said, do as I have done. In the Archbishop's Corner is where we stay focused. You turn your attention from the activities of daily life and you discover your goal, your purpose, and your mission. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for helping us discover the why of life, our purpose, and our mission. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Archbishop, today, June 27th, is Decide to be Married Day, which focuses attention— Not you, I hope. Not me, not you either. But for those who do decide to be married, it focuses attention on the joy of couples deciding to get married. Well, we know that in recent years, the marriage trend is on the decline. Do you have any insight as to why this might be? Yes, people are afraid. If I were a young person today— and I saw how many people are getting divorced, and I see all of these challenges in the society, I might become very fearful about uh, making a permanent commitment in marriage. So I think uh, that's part of the challenge, the difficulty. And I don't know that society helps uphold the uh, firmness of, of married life. Because, you know, if you have, for example, no-fault divorce, where somebody can just say bye-bye, and that's that. It all contributes to a lot of difficulties. And the light world today is a complicated place, you know. With, I won't say the economy so much because economy has always been a challenge for people throughout history. But the social, the religious uh, underpinnings and support for marriage are not what they were. 
don't you feel though that that frequently no matter what the relationship might be it doesn't have to be marriage but in every relationship there are always good days and bad days the problem though is that if you don't stick to the relationship if you're not committed to the relationship not committed to work through the the difficulty the challenges that come in that relationship then you're quick to throw your hands up and say i surrender this relationship is no good it's not going to work should have never been and then we get divorced well i think i would uh say that it's not with marriage it's not just about a relationship it really is about a sacrament instituted by god um, that conforms to the reality of creation, male and female, and to the whole plan of, of creation and salvation. So it's a matter of believing that God does give the grace uh, to those who strive with all their hearts to be faithful to the uh, vows that they've made. And now in a sinful world, uh, sometimes that doesn't happen. There are people who are divorced against their will, people who are in situations that are very difficult we're in our human weakness but we can't use what should be exceptional cases of things we can't let that become the uh, dictate that that all marriages should be uh, so taken so lightly in the legal and social way that uh, you know no fault divorce and all that kind of stuff and i think too you know children are an integral part of, uh, or let's put it this way, the openness to having children, the willingness to have children uh, is, is an integral part of the sacrament of marriage, uh, mm-hmm. of all marriage. When that becomes problematic, as it is too, that, that further complicates things. This week we celebrate the Feast of Three Apostles. On Tuesday, the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, and then on Saturday, the Feast of St. Thomas the Apostle. Do you want to say a few words about each of these? Well, Peter and Paul, of course, are the great princes of the apostles. Uh, Peter, appointed by the Lord in that capacity, uh, and Paul, as he says by his own admission, an apostle born out of time, knocked off his horse and called by the Lord in a very powerful way. And they complement one another because Peter and Paul uh, represent different uh, experiences and different elements in the in the growth of the church and all that God wills for 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 His church. And St. Thomas, of course, we know is Doubting Thomas, who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And, of course, that gives us a prayer that we all need. Why is his statement of faith, is, as he said, my Lord and my God, why is this considered one of the most explicit statements of faith in the New Testament? Well, I think it's one of the most important ones because we're all in the same boat, aren't we? Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, so it sets the tone, uh, it, it gives the model for the profession of faith that we all have to have to make. Let's transition to some of the news that's been going on, and specifically what I'm referring to is the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops meeting, and during that meeting, the bishops decided to move forward on drafting a teaching document on the Eucharist, a formal statement on the meaning of the Eucharist in the life of the Church. And the vote to proceed with the document took place after extensive and at times, admittedly, spirited debate on Wednesday and Thursday of of last week, with some bishops opposing the move to begin drafting the document. The measure passed by a vote of 168 to 55 with six abstentions. A draft of the document could be ready to be debated and amended and voted on by the bishops at their November meeting. Do you want to comment on that process, first of all, before we get into the nitty-gritty of it? 
Well, I think this is all very sad. You know, together with the great majority of bishops, uh, I voted yes, not for the misrepresentation that's been presented in some quarters, but for a teaching document on the truth, beauty, and goodness of the Eucharist in a post-pandemic world. That's what I voted yes for, and that's what the majority of bishops voted for. But for a number of reasons, which are very sad and I think unnecessary, this great focus was placed on Catholic politicians and elected leaders who promote abortion to the hilt, not only tolerate it, but promote it. And um, that really was not the origin of this idea of having a teaching document uh, on the Eucharist. When Archbishop Gomez, at an inauguration time, issued a statement about the election of the new president, he never mentioned the word Eucharist. I mean, it had nothing to do with the Eucharist. He simply said that uh, he, we need to begin a dialogue with uh, the, the president about the, the, the bishops, about these issues. And this got taken into some kind of new realm. I, I'm just amazed in our country. Well, I, I shouldn't be amazed at this point, but how politicized we've all become. I'm not just talking about Catholics or, or bishops or anybody. I'm talking about the whole country. You know, interestingly, when they had the little press conference after about this, Bishop Rhodes, who's chairman of the Doctrine Committee, who is charged with proposing a document, again, not on politicians, but on the truth, beauty, and goodness of the Eucharist in a post-pandemic world, I understand that one of the reporters asked him about midterm elections, and he, he said that it never entered his head uh, about talking about, you know, the, the beauty truth and goodness of the Eucharist. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is all of this has gotten skewed in a way that is very, very unfortunate. I think it's hurtful to the church and it was totally uncalled for, but it is what it is. I can see that the media, you just have to look at, at many examples that are contained in the media and you see that they have interpreted what the bishops have done as basically a political attack on President Biden for his pro-abortion stands. For instance, the New Republic magazine came out and said that the bishops met remotely this past week and agreed to write a document denying Holy Communion to Biden. Is that what the bishops did? They wrote a document? They agreed to write a document specifically to deny Holy Communion to President Biden? No, that, that's not at all what the discussion is about. That kind of question arose for the reasons that I, I just explained. And we're not going to write a national policy on withholding communion from politicians. There's they're not going to be any such thing. You know, that isn't to say that uh, in church law, individual bishops can, there's provision that they could withhold communion from someone. But that's, that's always been there. It's in canon law. And it's not really the purpose of, of the document that we have voted to approve or to move forward with. Archbishop, why then are the bishops doing this now? You know, we've been concerned for a very long time about these constant opinion polls and surveys that are taken that suggest that our Catholic people, or let's put it this way, all the Catholics in general, because I think the ones that go to Mass every Sunday, probably this is not as true of them, but Catholics in general uh, are indicating that they don't really believe that it is the body and blood of Christ. They see it as some kind of symbol or something less. And so this already long ago um, 
prompted us to say that our strategic plan for 2021-2024 is created anew by the body and blood of Christ, source of our healing and hope. In other words, we've already started to address this. Uh, all the things that we do in that four-year period are meant to focus in some way to help people to understand uh, the beauty and the truth and the reality of the Holy Eucharist. So this document that we're proposing uh, to, to write uh, is precisely to further that goal. It seems to me to be reasonable, especially since during this pandemic, bishops throughout the country have offered a, a dispensation from the obligation to attend Mass. And now coming out with this teaching document on the Eucharist would encourage people to attend Mass specifically because you can watch it on television, you can watch it over the Internet, but what you can't do is receive the Eucharist. That is the spiritual nourishment that we all need to sustain a holy a justified lifestyle. Yes. And, you know, part of the d discussion of this is what's called Eucharistic consistency or coherence, which simply means that a person's life, every Catholic's life, should be in accordance with what they receive, that they, that we all have to say that we have to strive not to have a disconnect between receiving Holy Communion and what the Church believes and teaches and the conduct of our lives. That has to do with every single person. It's not just about uh, politicians or prominent people. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Are the bishops going to issue a, a statement or policy on withholding communion from politicians, especially politicians who support abortion? Uh, no, there's not going, there can't be a national policy on such a thing because these things are articulated in canon law, and it's uh, up to an individual bishop uh, to apply the law where he sees it necessary to do so. Did the Vatican tell the bishops not to move forward on drafting a, a document on the Eucharist? No, but the Holy See did encourage the bishops to engage in dialogue and a broad consultation. Again, because this uh, whole issue of communion by politicians uh, was put to the fore, even though that was not the intent of, of writing this document. The, from the beginning, the idea was to have a document for everybody on the importance and, uh, and centrality of the Eucharist. So, yes, the meeting we had this last week was meant to be uh, to do what the, what the Holy See encouraged us to do, and that is to have a dialogue and a broad consultation. That will continue. That's the way we do everything. There was nothing presented, ever meant to be presented at this meeting. This meeting was a, a discussion on, about moving forward with the document, as I say, on the truth, beauty, and goodness of the Holy Eucharist in the life of the Church. Now, there was a group of 60 Catholic Democrats in the House of Representatives that released a statement the last day of the bishops' meeting calling on the United States Catholic bishops to avoid, as they called it, weaponizing the Eucharist. I think that's a very misguided understanding of what the Church means by Eucharistic consistency or Eucharistic coherence. I don't think that that, that word uh, is appropriate at all. Archbishop, let's now take a look at our Gospel reading on this 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Our Gospel is taken from Mark, the fifth chapter. So here's the Gospel account as it is dramatically presented, after which we'll ask you what your thoughts are. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and besought him. My little daughter is at the point of death. 
Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There was a woman who had had a flow of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. If I touch even his garments, I shall be made well. Immediately, the hemorrhage ceased, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone forth from him, immediately turned about in the crowd. Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had been done to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus saw a tumult and people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a tumult and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and walked. She was 12 years of age. They were immediately overcome with amazement. Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. A woman is healed, a child of 12 is brought back to life. What are your thoughts on this gospel, Archbishop? Well, now in, the, in this season of ordinary time in the church, we're presented with the wide range of gospel readings that basically present us with the, um, with the ministry of Jesus, with the signs that he performed calling people to repentance and faith. These things were all meant uh, to arouse in people the gift of faith, that they would understand that Jesus was more than a prophet, that, that the truth of what he had to proclaim was confirmed by these signs that he performed. You know, he wasn't a miracle worker in the way that we might talk about that. But here was someone who asked for repentance and faith in his very person, which is astounding, you know, that his, it wasn't just that, uh, about a message, but it was about him personally to accept him as being something more than, uh, than a man. Eventually, of course, confirming his divinity. But I think the important thing here is, you know, do not be afraid, just have faith. Well, we talked about it a moment ago with St. Thomas the Apostle, you know. Yeah. Uh, blessed are those who have not seen and believed. And even at the time of Jesus, when he was performing these miracles, not everybody believed it. Uh, or they, they didn't believe in him. That's the point. They didn't believe in him. And, of course, nobody can make that demand that we believe in them, at least not in an ultimate way unless it's God himself. 
and uh, Jesus as a divine person did make that claim. It seems that that message of Jesus is very applicable to today's day and age. Do not be afraid, just have faith. That message applies to us today, to those who are sick, those who are dying, those who have lost a loved one. Your thoughts? Well, yes, of course, because the gospel is God's living word. You know, when you go to church on Sunday and you hear the gospel being read, yeah, the priest or deacon is reading it, but it's Jesus speaking to you. God's word is alive and active, especially in the sacramental celebration of the, of the Eucharist. You know, how are you receiving it? How are you and I receiving it? Are we receiving it as a, a kind of a story from the past? Are we re- receiving it as kind of information? Uh, Pope Benedict said something very profound about that. He says that Scripture is not informational, it's transformational. And I think that says it all, that when we hear uh, the, the, the gospel, it's not meant to give us information, even though it has information in it, but it's meant to be transformational. How is your life being changed by what you hear? And so when you ask me to comment on the gospel, I can comment on the informational part, but every person who hears it, including me, has to ultimately take it and make something of it with God's grace in the transformational sphere. How am I going to be a different person, a better person? How am I going to repent and believe uh, having heard this word? Archbishop, let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. However, before we do that, it was interesting to me that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed a bill on June 14th requiring public school students to reflect and be able to pray as they see fit for one or two minutes each day during the first period. Florida law already encourages students to participate in silent prayer, but this new bill will require that minute or two of reflection. And the governor said, it's something that's important to be able to provide each student the ability every day to be able to reflect and be able to pray as they see fit. DeSantis said during one of his press conferences, the idea that you can just push God out of every institution and be successful, I'm sorry, our founding fathers did not believe that. Any comment, Archbishop? Well, it's a very uh, delicate thing in as much as there's a great diversity of religions in our country. There's a, and, and of course we see a growing sense of, um, of non-belief. I think that what is decisive here are parents, not public school system or, or anything. But on the other hand, uh, to say that apart from any particular religious belief in a public school, that students are asked to spend a minute or two in silent reflection, each in accordance with their you know own lights, and that, of course, would come chiefly from their parents and families. Well, I think that that's a positive thing. Even people who don't believe in God uh, would not deny the importance of taking a moment to reflect and be quiet. But I know, just like everything else, the things we've been talking about earlier, everything today is so utterly politicized that even to speak of those things in just objective terms is very hard to do because people immediately engage in huge religious, social, uh, and political battles. Looking at some of the questions submitted by our listeners, Jean from New Britain says, as we lighten it up a bit, 
Gene says, Archbishop, after we have all been dealing with this pandemic and its restrictions, including travel limitations, I was wondering if you've made plans for a summer vacation. Everybody deserves a summer vacation. Are you planning a special summer vacation now that states and countries are opening up? Yes, Gene, I am. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, in July, I will be taking some vacation time. Thank you. Beautiful. Rachel from Waterbury says, I am a hospital nurse and care for people in their final hours. In my experience, many dying patients claim to be non-believers. I am usually one of the last Christians they come into contact with, and I always feel a sense of anxiety as to whether or not I should share the gospel with them before it's too late. Do you have any recommendations as to what I should do in situations like these? Well, Rachel, I, I guess I have to be, we have to be careful here uh, because <clears throat> we always say that the gospel is not imposed, it's proposed to people. But uh, in a situation on a deathbed, um, when they are a captive audience, uh, I guess we have to be a, a little careful about how we approach them. Maybe if you were... It depends how you do this. And I don't know what the rules are of, of the hospitals about these things because, you know, anything to do with stuff today about privacy, you can't, you can, I mean, priests can't even ask who their parishioners are in the hospital anymore. We're not allowed to, to you know. So I would say if you bear witness to your, to your faith in some way by let's say, would you uh, allow me to say a prayer for you? And if they say yes, then spontaneously offering a prayer, that I think could be a very good way. Uh, I think that would be allowed if you asked them and they said yes, rather than, how should I say, trying to propose faith to them directly, particularly if, if they haven't expressed willingness for you to do it. And if they say no, to, even to a prayer, well, that doesn't prevent you from offering the prayer in the silence of your heart for them. What's important here is the action of God, not we are instruments of that. So it's a delicate thing, but I, that's, that's the best answer I could give. Candice from Simsbury says, Is it a sin to pray for God to give me enough money to enjoy a comfortable life? Or are we Catholics meant to embrace and welcome only loss and suffering? Is there any place for praying for and seeking out greater degrees of material comfort? Well, Candice, it's interesting how you put it, as if the alternatives would be a comfortable life versus loss and suffering. Uh, no, uh, the church has always recognized that all that we have are blessings of God. Some people are very uh, blessed materially, others are not. Some people are blessed with very good health, others are not. But that doesn't mean that they're unblessed or non-blessed because they don't have these things. The circumstances of our lives have to, you know, the mysterious destiny that we all have in a sinful and fallen world, by the way, uh, are... Uh, you know, beyond our our understanding. But we do what we do believe is that whatever our circumstances are in life, that we um, we ex we uh, make the most of it with uh, by being faithful to to loving God and our neighbor as ourself. So, for example, there's nothing wrong with praying for good health or praying to be healed when we're sick. But if we are sick and not well, then embracing that cross, also prayerfully in union with Christ, is God's will for us. Similarly, with material things, if we've been blessed with material things, you know, like we, we pray on our Thanksgiving Day, then we give thanks to God for the blessings we have. And, uh, 
you know, uh, I think what becomes wrong is if we have an in, inordinate attachment or, or lusting after uh, money and material things, know that that's not, not at all healthy. So we, we just have to uh, always evaluate these things and the desires of our heart with, with the eyes of faith. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all else will be given to you beside. In different measures, in different ways, but uh, when we look back at our life, if we're people of faith and we embrace life with faith, we can say how good God has been to us. And isn't it true then that the truth of our gratitude to God for blessings received is shown in the way that we share those blessings with those less fortunate? Well, certainly Jesus talks about that all the time. And remember, the word Eucharist means thanksgiving, that this is our the great act of thanksgiving that is offered by Christ, the eternal priest, to the Father. And we are associated with Christ in making that great act of Eucharist, of thanksgiving. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, as we approach our National Independence Day, we thank you for the blessings that are ours in our country. And we pray that at a time of so much division and rancor, so much anger and division, that you will help us to preserve uh, the union of the United States, which has been a great gift and a source of good, despite our weaknesses and sinfulness and the need that our country has to be purified of many injustices and many wrongs. We pray that our country, nevertheless, will continue to enjoy your blessing so that by repentance and faith and uh, by preserving always what is best in our history and our people, uh, we may be a blessing for others in the world. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. It was an interesting discussion today, and we wish you well during this next week. Thank you. You too. Thank you.